0: Previously on Idea to Startup. So in the words of George Costanza, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Over the next few episodes, we're going to start a startup on the podcast. That's a clip from last week's episode, but I'm realizing when they do that, like on Netflix, it's a different voice. This just sounds like me, but trust me, that was recorded from last week's episode when we decided that we were going to start a startup on the show. It seemed like a great decision at the time. If you're new or missed last week's episode, I'd probably go back and listen to it first. It'll lay the groundwork for everything we're going to talk about today. I've spent nights and weekends the past week doing the first steps you do when you have a startup idea, and I've got a lot to report. One of the headlines is that starting a startup while you've got a demanding day job is a lot harder than I remember. But the main headline is that customer interviews when done right are a cheat code and that once you get past a few hurdles, they are company changing. A lot happened this week, some good, some bad. Today's episode is the story of the last seven days, and it'll set us up nicely for the next seven, because by this time next week, we're gonna have some customers. But first, we need to talk about why people join dating apps, after some jazzy music, of course. This is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We're in our mini series, Starting a Startup, and this week we had some help. I sent out the bat signal for people with startup ideas and full-time jobs, and I got an avalanche of responses. I picked a handful for interviews, some of which you'll hear clips from either this week or next. As a thank you, here are promo spots from some of the folks that helped and the startups they're building. Check them out.
1: Happy Medium is a modern art supply company for casual artists who believe that art is not about what it looks like, but how it makes you feel.
2: I'm Dr. Alexandra Soa. I'm a dual board certified physician of internal and obesity medicine, and I'm the founder of Sowell Health. We are a consumer brand that is building affordable, accessible, and science-backed solutions for weight management and metabolic health. And our first product, the Weight Biology Kit, is the first and only at-home lab kit on the market to offer a comprehensive evaluation of factors that impact weight, including insulin resistance. You can find us at GetSoWell.com and on Instagram at GetSoWell. You can reach out to me personally on Instagram and LinkedIn at AlexandraSoaMD.
0: Back to why people join dating apps. Back when I was running Find Your Lobster, the mobile dating app I started in 2011, I had an advisor who was hell-bent on getting me to run customer interviews. I'd had the idea to leverage Facebook to help people date their friends' friends, something that wasn't on the market yet. We're still in the pre-Tinder and Hinge days back then. But I just wanted to build a product. I figured I knew what to build, and the most important thing was speed. I had to get this done before anyone else could. I'd heard about customer interviews and probably paid them lip service, but the real job was to build the product, right? But my advisor was adamant. He said I'd absolutely build the wrong thing if I didn't do customer interviews first, and then this massive opportunity would be wasted. And most importantly, he said, I needed to interview people who'd already joined dating apps. I needed to know what made them do it. Dating apps were borderline mortifying at the time. It was thought of as the absolute last resort something you had to do not something you chose to do we had to understand what made people make that stigmatized decision that was the key to everything because those people and people like them were the ones my advisor was convinced would be our first customers our first customers wouldn't be people who were completely against dating apps who we somehow convinced to change we'd never be able to do that our first customers the ones that would make or break our product would be people who already were on a dating app or had at least strongly considered joining one. Our job was to solve their problem better than the existing apps did. I vividly remember a meeting where we agreed that I'd speak with 25 customers who were already on dating apps in the next two weeks and report back with my findings. I remember this meeting so vividly because the interviews I ran changed how I look at startups, but also because the meeting was in a baked-by-Melissa cupcake shop in, I think, Soho. I simply cannot fathom that two grown humans chose to talk business in a Bake by Melissa over tiny cupcakes, but I even checked my calendar to see if my memory was wrong, and the meeting was definitely there. I don't even remember it being odd. I'm so confused. I need to know who chose that location. Was it me? When this whole pandemic thing is over, if anyone listening is up for it, let's head over to Bake by Melissa and talk startups. Anyway, 10 minutes after the meeting, I immediately realized I had no idea how to get in touch with 25 people who were on dating sites, specifically OkCupid, the one we thought most of our potential customers might try. And that's benefit number one of customer interviews. It's really easy to say, I'm going after millennials in Brooklyn, but when I tell you to talk to 25 of them next week, it gets real. You got to find them, which is something that'll be very important if you ever want to actually have a business. I ask our startups this all the time. If you had to speak with 25 customers next week, how would you do it? Customer interviews are practice for customer acquisition. It took a while, but I wound up finding a few channels and getting my 25 interviews, and they changed my perception of the business. To this day, I could talk about those interviews for hours, but I'll limit myself to one specific anecdote to show you their power. Your job as an entrepreneur is to get someone to change their behavior. This behavior change ideally makes their life measurably better. It's a beautiful thing when it works. But behavior change is rare and endlessly nuanced. Your goal is to become a PhD in your customer's behavior change. Customer interviews are the 101 course. When I interviewed customers who joined OkCupid, my goal was to become an expert on the moment they decided to make a profile. So I started off by asking, what made you join OkCupid? I quickly learned that question was no good because i get a generic answer, like I wanted to meet people. i tweaked tweak my question to tell me about the day you joined OkCupid. Now people would respond with something like, I don't know, I guess I just had enough of the bar scene and I wanted to try something new. At first, I took that as an answer, but when I reported it back to my advisor, possibly over Tiny Cupcakes, he told me that was not an answer that was acceptable. Everybody knew that. I needed to know more about that moment of behavior change than anybody else. He said the key was just saying, tell me more repeatedly until it was so awkward that I could not physically stand saying, tell me more one more time. I went back in. The next time I heard that someone was tired of the bar scene, I said, tell me more, and the world opened up. After a brief pause, the interviewee said, well, I guess I'd always gone out with my roommate and she'd recently got a boyfriend, so I figured I'd try OK Cupid. I went for broke. Tell me more. A split second of awkwardness later, and then, okay, it was a Friday night. I was on my laptop on my couch watching TV, and it was the second or third weekend in a row that my roommate was on a date, and I was alone. And one of my friends had just joined OKCupid and had had a few dates, and I thought, screw it. What can it hurt? And that is why you run customer interviews. Once I started to tell me more people to death, I started hearing iterations of that story over and over, a story no one else knew as well as I did because no one had the patience to ask those questions. And so we placed Facebook ads on Friday and Saturday nights that said things like, quote, your roommates out with their new boyfriend and you can't stomach the bar scene alone. Meet one of your friends, single friends, without leaving the couch. I don't want to have to be great at anything I don't know I can win. I don't want to compete with OkCupid on how pithy my ad copy can be. I don't want to compete on how well-designed my logo is or how perfect the people in my pictures are. I want to compete on the stuff they can't compete on. I want to know my customer better because I know that ad copy is deep enough to convert people despite worse design or logo or photos. Specificity and empathy are always going to win. Customers give you that, and interviews are the first source for that differentiator but find your lobsters all in the past, and possibly slightly embellished. It's been a while. What isn't embellished are the interviews in the process from the past seven days. So let's get into those. The best way to describe a customer interview done right is it should feel like you're cheating. Like you're the one with the teacher's copy of the textbook in high school that's got all the answers in the back. None of my interviews this week felt like that, but that's life. Here's what happened. The story of the last week starts on Wednesday, After the last pod was released, I'd announced that I'd be starting a startup in real time and reporting back on the podcast as it went. The idea we'd pursue was based on a problem I've seen firsthand. People who decide to pursue a startup idea while they have a full-time job need help creating a system to get the tough, counterintuitive stuff that'll help them build a business done. The problem I saw was that they couldn't do this stuff on their own. The process most entrepreneurs follow once they've got a startup idea kneecaps them from day one. I want to help. It's kind of what my day job is, but I think there are other ways to help other types of founders with this problem. I'd left you all last week with the promise of doing customer interviews over the next seven days in the margins around my day job at Tacklebox. It felt really cool publishing that podcast, like I was some sort of hero entrepreneur who could easily pull all this together in a week and record a podcast on it. And then I woke up Sunday morning with no interviews and a nice familiar layer of panic set in. Maybe that should just be our accountability product, forcing people starting companies to also start a podcast and promise some sort of progress each week. It's not the worst idea. Anyway, I sat down Sunday morning and the frantic work began. I needed interviews, but interviews, even when you know their value, are uncomfortable. I was even mental gymnasticsing my way to maybe just describing how to do interviews on the pod instead of actually running them when I remembered a saying. The hardest part about running five miles isn't the running part. It's putting on your shorts and sneakers. The thinking behind that saying is that once you're dressed to run, you always do it. That's the blocker, not the actual running. When this blocker pops up for you around interviews, and it will, I'd suggest the same thing I suggested to most of the customers at Find Your Lobster who complained about their matches. Lower your standards. Just get some conversations booked, even if they're not perfect. First and secondary connections are fantastic to start. And ask for help. Get it out in the universe so you can't take it back. For me, on Sunday morning, that meant a LinkedIn post and a tweet. The post and tweet said, word for word, who's working on a startup on the side right now? Got 15 minutes to chat about it? DM me, or if you're brave, let me know in the comments. The post took about two minutes to write and send. I'd put on my interview shoes and shorts. I figured maybe a few people would answer, and as I check now, three days later, about 75 people have reached out over DM or in the comments, so that worked. I randomly set up about 10-15 minute calls Monday and Tuesday. It's easy to psych yourself out over things you don't usually do. Customer interviews aren't a normal thing. I'd recommend a post like the one I did, or possibly even better, an email to 25 friends and family BCC'd asking to speak with someone who has the problem you're solving. People are dying to help you, I promise. Thousands of successful startups are sitting in the heads of founders because they didn't put their running shorts on. Don't let that be you. I happily watched the responses to the post roll in until I realized that now I had to talk to all these people. What would I say? With customer interviews, it's good to take a step back and think jobs to be done theory. What are you hiring these interviews to do? This early, I'm hiring them to make a decision. Not a drastic quit my job or not decision. I just want to see if this specific hypothesis deserves another week of tests, or if I need to tweak it, or if I need to throw it in the garbage can. At a high level, I'm trying to learn five things from these interviews. One, how much does this problem matter? Two, who does it matter for the most? Three, how does that person solve it now? How much pain is there? How much urgency? What's the frequency? What's the cost? Four, What breadcrumbs does that person leave along the way that would let me find more people like them? And five, what messaging might get their attention? So what's my interview stack? Because I know people will ask. And actually, it's important. I'll put it all in the show notes. I use the Rev Call Recorder on my iPhone, a free app which lets you record a call. Or I use Zoom and record the Zoom. I think you might need a premium subscription for that. Record every conversation. You'll want to go back through, but definitely ask the people first before you start recording. For storing and transcribing, I use Descript. It's a fantastic service that transcribes audio and lets you clip stuff together and pull out and sort common themes really easily. As for questions, I always have five written down max. You don't want to feel like Tom Brokaw. This is a conversation. Your best question is tell me more. The most important part of your questions is to remember that people don't change. If you ask someone if they go to the gym if there was one in their building, their answer is irrelevant. If they went to the gym three times last week, they'd probably go three times if they had a gym in their building. If they went zero times last week, they'd probably go zero times if they had a gym in their building. And by that logic, if you ask me to go to Bake by Melissa, I'm probably going to say yes. I'm sorry, I just can't get over that. And on behavior change, of course, I'm exaggerating. Some people do change, but not enough to bet your company on. I'm only working with customers actively trying like hell to change who have changed in the past. Lower the bar. This means the questions you ask need to be about past behavior. When's the last time? Tell me about the best time. Tell me about the worst time. Uncover exactly how the person acted and felt last time they encountered the problem you're solving. Be specific. Don't ask general. Ask last week. Better yet, just read the book The Mom Test. It's in the show notes and it is pure gold. As for length of interview, 20 minutes max. Be ready to cut it at 10 minutes if it's going nowhere. When you find the right customer, it might go to 40 minutes. Let that happen too. Now let's address the question in the back of your mind. I can literally hear you thinking it. Who the hell wants to talk to me? There's that trusty imposter syndrome again. The simple answer is everyone wants to talk to you. When's the last time someone just asked about your thoughts and didn't charge you $300 an hour for it? People are dying to talk about themselves, particularly if you're trying to help them solve a hard problem. Okay, enough preamble. What the hell did the people I interviewed actually say? What do I do next? The conversations I had this week were scattered. I was trying to gauge how poignant the problem of working on a startup in the margins was, particularly as it pertained to workflow and prioritization and accountability. There were some insights here and there, but mostly it was just an avalanche of data points I'm still sifting through. If any of you have insights based on what I play below or want to hear the full recordings to help me out, email me at brian at This worked last week when I asked for help, so I'll try it again. But also, this is a real thing. This is what will happen, and it's how you'll feel. You'll run 10 interviews, and you'll be further back than when you started. When our founders run 10 interviews and I ask them what they learn, the answer is always, I need more interviews, which is funny because they didn't think they needed any when they started. The value will come in the bulk. In not tracking every word people say, but in the themes that you can't ignore after a bunch of interviews, the phrases you hear over and over, the problems that become blindingly obvious, that's what you solve. Nothing's done that to me yet. Here are some highlights. I asked Taylor and Rhett from Happy Medium about what was hard early, and they quickly went right into talking about deep understanding of themselves and the way they work. Here's Taylor talking prioritization and energy management. What's hardest about starting something while you've got a full-time job?
1: A couple of things. So The first is just the mind space. With anything and especially starting a company and there's a lot of creative problem solving, even if it's as simple as putting together a model that has to happen and that takes a lot of brain concentration and brain hours and I found myself mm. really tired after work and kind of dedicating most of my waking hours and most, of my most energetic hours to a full-time job. I've definitely heard founder stories and believe founder stories of getting up at 4 a.m. and working from 4 to 8. But for me, it was more of I spent most weekends working on Happy Medium, but weekdays were really more about learning and not necessarily, like, pushing the business forward. So I'd say that's number one. Number two is the networking aspect. So I think that was the thing that changed the most after I quit my job is having the time to meet with other founders, with potential investors, with customers and put together we were doing in-person events. So a lot of it was like networking with businesses that had spaces for us to come and host these events in. And I couldn't have been gone from the office as much. I wonder now if that's changed with everybody working remotely. But at the time I was going into the office and was there, you know, like 830 to six every day was dedicated like to a specific location.
0: Something else was blaring during the conversation. They're co-founders and they're married, perhaps not the best customer for accountability. I did have one more takeaway from that group, though, that might end up being more product focused. And I promise this isn't just a tackle box plug. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that or on the, the accountability for early founder space at all. So what we did while we were in Tacklebox is actually take your notes from class and we would print out one or two or maybe sometimes up to three and we would actually tape them to the wall for the next Hmm. week as we were kind of going through the exercises and making sure that we were staying focused on exactly what we were supposed to be focused on and nothing else. Visual cues came up a number of times in the interviews. People use these to trigger specific actions that weren't normal for them mostly proactive stuff, cold emails and things. Here's a story I heard about working that I thought was interesting, but again, not sure if it represents someone with a problem they couldn't solve. Here's Alexandra. What is the hardest part about starting something on the side while you've got a full-time job?
2: I feel like I'm working all the time, and I have two young children, and so... Truly, I feel like my email is always exploding into every element of my life. And so very early on in developing this second business, I put my first business into very discrete pockets of time and days of the week. And I was, because I am owner of the first business, I was able to do that. So I worked some longer days, kind of condensed, and then was able to allow specific days that were just dedicated to the growth of the second startup and that has helped tremendously but it still does take care of the fact that emails are constantly coming in the outside world doesn't necessarily know that you've dedicated specific days for specific projects
0: (laughs) tell me about how you keep those times sacred
2: i live and die by my google calendar (laughs) um it's just blocked off and i have two separate teams actually and they know that i will only be available on specific days and of course, for emergencies, there's some crossover, but that we really keep and consolidate time for one business on three days a week and the other on two days a week. It really helped my brain. I found, this is not how I started, but I found that my brain really couldn't focus if I was being kind of attacked by multiple problems and issues at, at different times. And I really needed dedicated brain space. I also really like to work in the 30-minute method, the Pomodoro method.
0: Some secret language things like Pomodoro that I could use in ads, but honestly, it didn't seem like she had a massive problem either. Nick, on the other hand, seemed more in our wheelhouse. Accountability was something he tried to solve. It was an issue, and he's clearly interested in it. Have you ever sought out a mentor or a coach to help you work on the side project?
1: You know, you bring this up, and it's something that I actually have been thinking about more and more. So, no, the answer is no, I haven't. And the added detail to that is I'd like to. Uh, I've thought more and more Mm -hmm. about an accountability partner and, and things of that nature, someone that will help just keep the momentum going and serve as a sounding board and someone to check in with and, you know, hold me accountable, frankly.
0: Cool. Have you sort of explored that yet to try and find one or or tried anything?
1: Yeah, you know, I haven't. So I listened to a a podcast, I think it was the science of success podcast, something like that. Mm. And there was someone on there who made a living doing this and and created a business out of it, almost a turnkey type service out of it. So that was the first that I thought, you know, this could be, there could be something out there.
0: I'm still not sure where I stand on this idea. I know I need more interviews and I've scheduled them, but I'll leave you with something important. It's easy to create what Tamara, our COO, calls a Franken customer, an amalgamation of a bunch of customers you've spoken to that, when combined, would be the perfect customer. I'd love to take Taylor and Vlad and Nick and cram them all together, but that person doesn't exist. We need to deal with reality. And the second big piece of reality for these interviews is what I think of as the one to 10 scale. It's tempting to try and help customers who are at a one, meaning they're currently pretty hopeless. And the Delta, if you did help them, would be massive. But that ain't happening. You'd be lucky to get them from a one to a three. You're much better off finding people who are already an eight or a nine out of 10 and helping them get over the top. In this situation, it's someone who's already pretty damn good at accountability, who values it and has shown they value it in the past. Giving them that last nudge is where we can get started. Then we'll work back to the sevens and sixes as our product grows. But we've got to start with the people who are close. So where do all these interviews lead us? Where indeed. We'll see you next week. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Baked by Melissa Cupcakes. Instead of one normal size cupcake. <laughs> oh, I couldn't do it. This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Baked by Melissa Cupcakes. Instead of one normal size cupcake, can we interest you in seven tiny ones? We're open for business meetings of all kinds.